Welcome back, my spooky friends. I'm Chappie, host of Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. This is Christmas week. Merry Christmas, Happy Yule, whatever you guys celebrate. Happy Holidays. We will be getting into a couple of Christmas tales um, that are spooky and paranormal. And then with the great tradition of telling ghost stories at Christmas, I will head right into some other scary ghost stories. Without further ado, let's get started. All right, let's get started. Do, do, do. 10 Spooky Ghost Stories for Christmas Time. A few weeks ago, a Smithsonian article by Colin Dickey called A Plea to Resurrect the Christmas Tradition of Telling Ghost Stories was making the rounds on Facebook. To our surprise, it seemed like most people weren't aware that Christmas ghost stories were a thing in Victorian England, a big thing. This is what happens when you forget not everyone has an unhealthy obsession with 19th century Britain. And while there are a few little hints of it in today's world, mainly via the many, many adaptations of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, we maintain the Muppet, the Muppet Christmas Carol is the best. And scraps of the lyrics like, there will be scary ghost stories in the song of it's the most wonderful time of the year. The vast majority of the Western population no longer connects Christmas with ghost stories at all. And our man Colin is right. That's a real shame. So we are bringing them back. Do, do, do. To understand why Christmas was traditionally a time for ghost stories, you have to look at the various connections the celebration of Christmas has to the Celtic celebration of Yule, the winter solstice, and the darkest night of the year. While like Halloween and Samhain, 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 these connections are not perfect, and Yule certainly didn't turn into Christmas. There are still significant borrowings that should be considered. What most, what's most important here, however, is that winter solstice is yet another liminal time, a time of the year when the veil between worlds is thin. This makes it, therefore, a perfect time for ghosts. This belief, coupled with the fact that it simply gets darker earlier, makes the end of December the prime and traditional haunted storytelling time. While telling ghost stories in the dark of the year has been popular for centuries, Christmas ghost stories were wildly popular in Victorian England, especially in periodicals and as part of oral tradition. Dickens' classic work was by no means the only ghost story, though it was, as Dickie argues, perhaps the most sentimental and therefore lasting. But ghost stories appeared all over the place, some much better than others, of course, and all intending to inspire at least a small shiver. Dickens was also a huge editor of Christmas ghost stories. He believed that Christmas Eve is the witching time for t storytelling, and frequently included ghost stories in the magazines he edited. Interestingly, women contributed a huge portion of these Christmas ghost stories. Scholars have estimated that as much as 50 to 70% of all 19th century ghostly fiction was written by women. 
So why were the Victorians so obsessed with the ghosties? And it wasn't just ghost stories. They also had fads for holding seances, picnicking in cemeteries, and forming spiritualists and occult societies. Part of it was the development of a middle class, more leisure time, and higher literacy, meaning more people reading. And part of it was the ghost stories offered fantasies of destabilization of the powerful at a time when the British Empire was at its height. And part of it is simply the legends are powerful ways of dealing with anxiety and having fun. And they've always been. So here we are. A few of our favorite ghosty Christmas stories. Some from the Victorian age, some from a bit after. We, like Dickens, believe this can be a witching time for these kinds of tales. And we invite you to join us in just a bit of terror for the season. Our first one we're going to look at is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens in 1843. The most famous Christmas ghost story of them all. Obviously, we have to start with this one. The miserly Ebenezer Scrooge is thoroughly haunted by three ghosts until he is scared into embracing the Christmas spirit. Marley was dead to begin with. There is no doubt whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker, and the chief mourner. Scrooge signed it, and Scrooge's name was good upon change for anything he chose to put his hands on. Old Marley was dead as a doornail. Mind, I don't mean to say that I know, of my knowledge, what there is particularly dead about a doornail. I might have been inclined to regard a coffin nail as the deadest piece of ironmongery in the trade but the wisdom of our ancestors is in the simul and my unhallowed hands shall not disturb it or the country's done for you will therefore permit me to repeat emphatically that marley was dead as a doornail it's just a little excerpt from that story Uh, This next one is The Old Nurse's Story by Elizabeth Gaskell from 1852. A classic Gothic Victorian ghost story replete with ancestral secrets, organ music, and seriously haunted house. I turned towards the long, narrow windows, and there, sure enough, I saw a little girl, less than my Miss Rosamond, dressed all unfit to be out of doors, such a bitter night crying, and beating against the window panes, as if she wanted to be let in. She seemed to sob and wail, till Miss Rosamond could bear it no longer, and was flying to the door to open it, when all of a sudden, and close upon us, the great organ pealed out so loud and thundering, it fairly made me tremble, and all the more when I remembered me that, even in the stillness of the dead cold winter, I heard no sound of little battering hands upon the window glass. Although the phantom child had seemed to put forth all its force, although I had seen it wail and cry, no faintest touch of sound had fallen upon my ears. Whether I remembered all this at the very moment, I do not know. The great organ sound had so stunned me into terror. But this I know. I caught up with Miss Rosalind before she got to the hall. Hall door opened and clutched her and carried her away, kicking and screaming into the large, bright kitchen where Dorothy and Agnes were busy with their mince pies. It's an excerpt from the old nurse's story. 
Uh, this is a shorter one. It's Horror, A True Tale by John Berwick. 1861. The slow burning suspense of this tale is enough to make your hair curl or turn white overnight, just like the narrator. I've heard since then of the Scottish belief that those doomed to some great calamity become fey and are never disposed for merriment and laughter as just before the blow falls. If ever mortal was fey, then I was so on that evening. And that's it. Uh, the next one is Bring Me a Light by Jane Hooper, 1861. Snow White's stepmother got nothing on the vengeful Lady Henrietta. The story details how her evil deeds poisoned her family home for generations. She paced to and fro, turning and returning with savage, stealthy quickness. The day waned and night began. Her servant came to see if she were wanted and was sent away with haughty negative. She's busy in some wicked thought, murmured the old woman. Right, the next one is The Ghost Summons by Ada Busen, 1868. A doctor is hired to witness a man's final hours. Would you be willing to earn a thousand pounds? A thousand pounds? His words seemed to burn in my very ears. I should be thankful if I could do so honestly, I replied with dignity. What is the service required of me? A particular look of intense horror passed over the white face before me. But the blue-black lips answered firmly, to attend a deathbed. So some of these aren't, like, super scary, but you get the idea. Uh, a few more, and then we'll move on to some real ghost stories. Uh, this one's called The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood, 1908. Sarah saw the title of the story and thought, The Kit Bag and then read it only to herself, shrieking, Arg, the kit bag. This story is a great reminder of why it's a bad idea to defend a murderer. It is difficult to say exactly at what point fear begins, when the causes of that fear are not plainly before the eyes. Impressions gather on the surface of the mind, film by film, as ice gathers upon the surface of still water but often so lightly that they claim no definite recognition from the con consciousness. Then a point is reached where the accumulated impressions become a definite emotion. The mind realizes something has happened, and with something of a start, Johnson suddenly recognized that he felt nervous, oddly nervous. Also, that for some time past, causes of this feeling had been gathering slowly in his mind but that he had only just reached the point where he was forced to acknowledge them. All right. Between the lights. What's that date? 1912. Christmas croquet and hallucinations. What's not to love? Well, let, let us say for the moment that it was not a dream. Exactly, but a hallucination. What, whichever it was, in any case, it haunted me for months. I think it was never quite out of my mind, but lingered somewhere in the dusk of consciousness, sometimes sleeping quietly, so to speak, but sometimes stirring in its sleep. 
It was no good my telling myself that I was disquieting myself in vain, for it was as if something had actually entered into my very soul, as if some seed of horror had been planted there. And as the weeks went on, seed began to sprout, so that I could no longer even tell myself that that vision had that that vision had been a moment's disorderment only. I can't say that it actually affected my health. It did not, as far as I know. I did not sleep or eat insufficiently, but morning after morning, I used to wake, not gradually through pleasant dozings into full consciousness, but with absolute suddenness and find myself plunged in an abyss of despair. All right. Next one is called The Dead. By James Joyce, 1914. Though technically no ghosts appear, the story is haunted by the memory of a young man long since dead. A few light taps upon the main, upon the pane made him turn to the window. It had begun to snow again. He watched sleep, sleepily the flakes, silver and dark, falling obliquely against the lamplight. The time had come for him to set out on his journey westward. Yes, the newspapers were right. Snow was general all over Ireland, and I was falling on it was falling on every part of the dark central plain, on the treeless hills, falling softly upon the bog of Allen and farther westward, softly falling into the dark, mutinous Shannon waves. It was falling too upon every part of the lonely churchyard on the hill where Michael Fury lay buried. It lay dr thickly drifted on the crooked crosses and headstones, on the spears of the little gate, on the barren thorns. His soul swooned slowly as he heard the snow falling faintly through the universe, faintly falling, like the descent of the last end upon the living and the dead. Right. That was another one. Alright. And that's it on those. I thought we might talk about um, Krampus and the origins of that since it's Christmas time. Alright. Let me see how we're doing on time. We'll go ahead and take a short break and get right into Krampus after this. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Alright, welcome back. Let's get right into Krampus. Alright. Krampus, in Central European popular legend, a half-goat, half-demon monster that punishes misbehaved children at Christmas time. He's a devilish companion of St. Nicholas, 
Krampus is believed to have originated in Germany, and his name derives from the German word Krampen, which means claw. Krampus was thought to have been part of pagan rituals for the winter solstice. According to legend, he is the son of Hell, the Norse god of the underworld. That's H-E-L. With the spread of Christianity, Krampus became associated with Christmas, despite efforts by the Catholic Church to ban him. The creature and St. Nicholas are said to arrive on the evening of December 5th. Krampusnacht. Krampus night. While St. Nicholas rewards nice children by leaving presents, Krampus beats those who are naughty with branches and sticks. In some cases, he is said to eat them or take them to hell. On December 6th, St. Nicholas Day, children awaken to their gifts or to nurse their injuries. Festivities involving Krampus include the Krampus Run. In this activity, which involves alcohol, people dressed as the creature, parade through the streets, scaring spectators and sometimes chasing them. Beginning in the late 20th century, amid efforts to preserve cultural heritage, Krampus runs became increasingly popular in Austria and Germany. During this time, Krampus began to be celebrated internationally, and the monster's growth, growing appeal was evident in numerous horror films. Some claimed the expanding popularity of Krampus was a reaction to the commercialization of Christmas. Alright, good read. Very cool, very, very cool. Again, it's connected with the winter solstice. Alright, now we're just going to get into some good old-fashioned scary stories. <clears throat> One of the most infamous, well-known ghost stories started on November 13th, 1974, when Ronald... J. Defoe Jr. murdered his entire family in Amityville, New York. However, it wasn't the six-person homicide that put the sleepy little Long Island town on the map. It was the Holmes Paranormal Activity, which began 13 months later when it was acquired by the Lutz family. Of course, details of the haunting, like most hauntings, are unconfirmed, but the Lutzes claimed that during their 28-day stay, they witnessed several unexplained and unexplainable events, i.e. doors flew off their hinges, slime seeped out of the walls, and there were ghosts. George Lutz used to wake up at 3.15 every morning, the exact time the Defoe murders were carried out. Since reports of the hauntings first surfaced, the Amityville home has been the backdrop of several stories, documentaries, and films. I think we have more of that story coming up. Let me see. I believe I pinned it. Yes, I did. All right. This is from 
thistv.com. The shocking true story behind the Amityville Horror. The Amityville Horror is one of the most iconic and best-known haunted house stories of the past century. Following the publication of a 1977 novel about the incident, a blockbuster film premiered in 1979 that subsequently spawned copious amounts of sequels, reboots, and knockoff films in every decade since. To date, the unassuming, purpose-purportedly haunted Long Island home has featured in nearly two dozen films, and there's no indication that people will get tired of being spooked of it anytime soon. But what's the real story that inspired the long-running and popular horror franchise? Whether you believe in ghosts or not, there's no denying the history of Amityville's notoriety really did begin with a true horror. Again, as I already explained, in the early morning hours of November 13th, 1974, a man named Robert Defoe Jr. shot and killed his mother, father, and four siblings while they slept in their beds on 112 Ocean Avenue, Amityville, New York. Defoe was convicted of for their murders, and he remains incarcerated today. Needless to say, with all of its occupants murdered, the house at 112 Ocean Avenue soon became available, and in December 1975, the Lutz family moved in. George and Kathy Lutz, along with their three children, lasted just 28 days in the house. They claimed to have been driven out by terrifying paranormal activity, which they linked to the murders. Among the strange things that allegedly happened in the home were sightings of demons, objects moving on their own, slime pouring from the walls, a fly infestation in the dead of winter, strange demonic voices, and the family being attacked by unseen forces. The Lutz's supposed experience were fictionalized by J. Anson for his 1977 novel, The Amityville Horror, and that's where the story gets a bit muddled. The book was a novel, but because it claimed to have been inspired by true events, many believed it was a work of nonfiction. Over the ensuing years, this has led to claims that the Lutz family fabricated their entire story. After all, no one who occupied the house after the Lutzes has ever reported anything strange happening there, let alone the constant terrifying encounters that supposedly plagued the Lutz family during their month in the house. One of the Lutz's sons, Daniel Lutz, has maintained the hauntings took place, and his reliability has been questioned. Their son, Christopher Quarantino, has claimed that little paranormal activity took place in the home. He says that what did was brought about by George Lutz's occult rituals. And then there are loads of investigators and critics who believe the Lutz's made the whole thing up in an attempt to cash in and buying a murder house. Whatever the version of the Amityville horror you believe, there's no argument that the story makes one heck of a scary story. You can see for yourself by turning into this Amityville horror marathon on Saturday, June 6th. Oh, this is a long time ago. <laughs> Whoa. You won't be able to see that on Saturday. All right. Oof. Let's go back to our list. Okay. 
now that we've talked about the Amityville horror. Let's talk about The Conjuring. You've probably seen or at least heard about The Conjuring. The 2013 film featuring Vera Farmiga, Patrick Wilson, and Ron Livingston was very well received. But did you know the supernatural theory or thriller was based on a true story? Yes, the Perron family really existed and lived in a haunted home. So what happened? According to the Perrons, the Rhode Island's residence was the site of several strange occurrences. Things moved at random. There were unexplained noises and, yes, ghosts. The parents e even experienced the occasional possession. And while their home was not the site of a mass murder, many children died under mysterious and suspicious circumstances, and their deaths have been tied, albeit loosely, to legendary Satanist Bathsheba Sherman. The next one is The Crying Lady in Dakota. When the Dakota was built, it was something of a modern marvel. According to Curbed New York in 1885, real estate record and builder's guide regarded it as one of the noblest apartment houses in the world. And since its opening, it has housed many famous residents, including Peter Chavasky, Lauren Bacall, Rosemary Clooney, Connie Chung, and Maury Povich. But the Dakota has made a new name for itself after John Lennon and Yoko Ono moved into the building in 1973. Why? Because Lennon claimed he saw a crying lady ghost roaming the halls. And after Lennon died directly in front of the Dakota, Ono said she witnessed Lennon's ghost sitting at his piano. All right, next one is the Jersey Devil. While this one is not a ghost story, the tale of the Jersey Devil has withstood the test of time, and for good reason. Stories of the winged beast are truly terrifying. But who or what is the Jersey Devil? According to Weird New Jersey, the infamous creature haunting the Pine Barrens is a child of Mother Leeds, a Pine resident who conceived her 13th child in 1735. At the time, Leeds had no idea how she could care for, let alone afford another kid. So in exasperation, she raised her hands to heaven and proclaimed, let this one be a devil. Leeds got her wish. Moments after birth, her healthy baby boy grew horns and claws and bat-like wings. Legend has it that the devil then killed his mother before attacking onlookers. Next one is the Phantom Steamboat on the Tombigbee River. In February 1858, a steamboat named Eliza Battle set out on a cruise down the Alabama's Tombigbee River. Tombigbee. Yeah. I don't know if there's a way to say that that doesn't sound horrible. Tombigbee. Tombigbee. Never mind. On board were 60 passengers and more than 1,200 bales of cotton. But when the cotton caught fire on March 1st, guests and crew were overcome by smoke and flames. 33 perished on or in the Tom Bigby, 
and it is said that those ill-fated passengers haunt the river to this very day. And on brisk nights, people have claimed to see Eliza battle in the misty waters. Of course. The next one is the ghost of Henry Dixon. Tunnelton may be a small, unincorporated town in rural Indiana, but it is big in the ghost hunting community. Why? Because Tunnelton is home to the Tunnelton Tunnel, aka the Big Tunnel, where it is said numerous ghosts still linger, both on and beneath the grounds. However, the most famous tenant is Henry Dixon, a night watchman whose body was found just inside the tunnel in 1908. Dixon's murder was never solved, and many have reported seeing the watchman on patrol, lantern in hand. Locals have even been chased by Dixon. The Legend of the Hamburger Man While the origins of the Hamburger Man are unclear, the reason for his moniker is obvious. Urban legend says the half-man, half-monster kidnaps his victims, drags them deep in the woods of the Sand Hills State Park in Cutchinson, Kansas, and once there, grinds his victims into hamburger meat. Ew. Alright, our next one, called Devil's Den. In the summer of 1863, hundreds of thousands of soldiers descended on Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and many lost their life. According to How Stuff Works, more than 50,000 infantrymen were left dead, wounded, or missing, and rumor has it that these soldiers still haunt the battlefields, particularly Devil's Den, a rocky, a rocky enclave where 1,800 died. One woman claims to have felt a hand grab her ankle at the historic site, and several others have seen ghosts appear both in person and in photographs. I believe we've talked about this one before, but Myrtle's Plantation. It is said numerous spirits haunt the Myrtle's Plantation in St. Francisville, Louisiana. However, the most well-known ghost is Chloe, who according to Plantation's official website is the former slave and love interest of plantation owner Clark Woodruff. Their affair ended abruptly. Woodruff caught her eavesdropping on him, and his punishment cut off her ear. But Chloe allegedly exacted her revenge. She poisoned the rest of the family. Unfortunately, Chloe's peers did not defend her actions. The other slaves knew what she had done and hanged her. It is believed that Chloe resides on the property to this very day. Alright. See how we're doing on time. Alright, we'll take a short break and then we'll get back into some ghost stories here in a minute. Alright, welcome back. Found some more Christmas stuff for you. Storytelling has been a part of human culture since before the written word. Druidic traditions would use storytelling as a mnemonic device for memorizing vast amounts of information. 
Bardic traditions kept the stories of warriors and kings alive in their sagas with the intention of immortalizing the heroes of old Europe. Myths symbolically conveyed ancient wisdom and transmitted esoteric knowledge between those who understood their deep, deeper symbolism. Without the stories of these oral traditions, which were eventually written down, much of ancient history of pagan Europe would have been lost. Up until the modern technology age, storytelling was still an integral part of human social interaction. However, the 20th century, the television, film industry, and electronic media have replaced the living, breathing art of storytelling. This is something magical about the connection made between an audience and a narrator. If we allow ourselves to lose the ability to tell our own stories and take time to listen to those of others, we will be missing a genuine part of the human experience. Stories connect us to the past, to the ancestors, and to the well of memory. There are acts of magic in and of themselves. When my cousins and I were young, we had a tradition of going to my uncle's house with the rest of the family to be read Twas the Night Before Christmas. This was an enchanting t ritual that would fill us with excitement for the following day. Now that we are grown, we no longer gather on Christmas Eve, but this tradition is one I hope to revive when my, sister, when my sisters have kids of their own. In Britain, telling stories of, at Christmas time is widely practiced tradition. Telling ghost stories or devil stories during the winter months is part of the holiday celebration in parts of Northern Europe. It was with the help of Charles Dickens and the commercialization of the holiday greeting cards that rekindled the Christmas celebrations of old. Christmas was a time of festivity resembling pagan Yuletide celebrations before being oppressed by puritanical powers. A Christmas Carol in 1863 became the most widely known story of the Christmas season, rivaling even the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. The same puritanical suppression was the reason this tradition did not make it to America. The revitalization of Christmas celebrations during the Victorian era drew from the romanticized folk traditions with roots in pagan religion. A Christmas Carol contained many themes from older Yule and winter solstice celebrations such as death and rebirth, visitation by spirits, mirth, and the power of fate. It was a natural thing for families to gather close for warmth around the fire and pass the long winter nights with stories and conversation. The older themes of death and rebirth and growth or in growing darkness combined with the pagan folkways and Christian concepts created a backdrop conducive to the Christmas ghost story. During a time when the spirits of the dead were known to roam the earth and the powers of the underworld were at their height, it was all people could do to assuage their fears by telling stories. Rivenets, Fairies, and the Wild Hunt One common theme of these stories was the rivenet, a reanimated corpse, usually a family member, a criminal, or another familiar individual from the village. Revenants would often come to, port to portent impending doom, demand the performance of some ritual or claim the living. 
These creatures were a combination of evil spirits and reanimated corpses, and were usually dispatched by, dispatched by burning or severing the head. Various tales describe the steps taken to seal an individual in their grave to prevent them from returning as the dreaded revenant. Stories of reanimated dead were common in e England, Iceland, and other parts of Northern Europe. This was also during a time when grave robbing was a common problem. Stories of fairies were also prevalent, especially in England and Ireland. These fairy tales were more horror stories than tales of gossamer-winged, childlike pixies. The fairies were dark, bloodthirsty, and quick to lead a wandering human to their death. Legends of people being taken to Elfheim for a night only to find that a hundred years had passed in the human realm. The Wild Hunt, or Helican's Hunt, as it was known in the tale of Orderic Vitalis of the 12th century monk, was a popular theme as well. He tells a story, as it was relayed to him, of a monk named Wakelin, who on the night of January 1st, 1091, crossed paths with the retinue of sinful, dead, dwarf-like demons and the devil himself. It was said that people were often swept away by these processions from the spirit world, never to be heard again. While Charles Dickens popularized the tradition of the Christmas ghost story, there were other writers who were well known for their chilling tales on winter nights. Montague Road James is known for one of the great English ghost story writers. He held a yearly tradition of reading his stories to colleagues and students around the fireside while enjoying drinks. It's important to note that many of the Victorian ghost stories were written by women, such as the famous J.H. Riddell. Rituals of storytelling can serve as a means of invocation and honoring the dark gods of the waning half of the year. They are a means of remembering lost loved ones and for a moment bringing them back to life to share in the warmth of the Yule fire. They can also serve as a means of protection from dangerous powers of the winter and wild clawing to get inside during the time of extended darkness. By naming these dark powers and paying them the respect they are due, we can hope they will pass us unharmed, perhaps even leaving us with secret wisdom that can only be gained from the shadows. All right. Cool story. All right. Getting right into some Haunted House Edition spooky stories. Before we dive into some seriously spooky stories, you should know that the home insurance does not cover damage caused by the paranormal. So what can you do if your house is haunted? In this special edition of our blog, we present to you four true stories of homes that were haunted, along with what people involved did to get their lives back to normal. This one is called The Ghost Who Loves Bacon. Paul Allen who runs the micro-distillery, Hope Springs Distillery, with his wife in Limburn, Georgia, was careful to tell us that he isn't a usual believer in the whole haunting thing. Our household is basically crackpot free, he said. I'm a 40-year-old veteran engineer, and my wife is recovering attorney. 
She also is a talented glass artist. Over the years, she said, we grew close to a fellow with 25 years as a nearby shop owner selling the raw materials for her glasswork. In that time, Paul said they often heard the shop owner discuss the spirits of his shop. They all had names, kept to specific areas, and were said to be friendly. I spoke to a couple of his employees, and they noted that, yes, there was some, someone there. Paul told us, while well, everyone at the shop more or less coexisted with these beings, they didn't feel as if something was running fingers through their hair when no one was around. Things might have continued indefinitely like this, if not for the renovation plans. The old downtown area was about to be massively refurbished, Paul said. So the shop owner decided to shut it down and move. One afternoon, my wife and I visited for the last time. When she and the proprietor went into the office to handle some business, I stood in the middle of the empty store and said aloud that it appeared the spirits were about to be homeless, and if they wanted, they could come stay with us. He meant it as a joke, but when Paul and his wife got home, the strangeness began almost immediately. First, it was smells. Cigar smoke, roses, and bacon cooking. Housekids would ask who'd been cooking bacon in the middle of the night, Things steadily worsened, including late-night screeching fits by the pet parrot. The cats refused to go in certain areas of the house, but then came the knife. I was cooking dinner when a large knife flew from beside the stove to the casing of the kitchen door, said Alan. I can professionally state that things that are thrown and released will follow a specific downward path, whereas this one went straight and horizontally. I measured the departure and landing points, and it was clearly moved there, not thrown. The last straw for Alan was seeing something floating up the stairs. Yes, I prayed, not out of fear, but desperation to be rid of this thing. I reminded whatever it was that we were given dominion over this earth, and thus its time was up, and to leave. It did, he reports. Seriously. The Ghost Who Left Bruises John Stewart reached out to us with a much more sinister story of a haunted home. It's all started when he met the woman he wanted to spend the rest of his life with. They both had their homes, and every time John visited hers, he felt uncomfortable, as if he were being watched. It got to the point where I would spin around, expecting someone to be there, he said, but no one was there. Whenever he visited the house, strange things happened. Doors slammed upstairs when he was in the house alone downstairs, and all the windows were shut. He'd feel the weight of a body sitting on the foot of the bed. When John and his partner decided to move in together, he made it clear he would not move into her house, but he agreed to help her renovate so that they could get a better price when they sold it. That's when things got really serious. The minute I started renovating, things started to ramp up, he said. It felt like someone in the basement was hitting the ceiling with a sledgehammer. He started to see shadow people in his peripheral vision, and his tools would go missing. Then when he started renovating on the final room, the upstairs bathroom, he saw objects levitating. He heard footsteps running toward him. All of a sudden, he felt as if he were covered in cobwebs and filled with an electrical charge. 
The longer he stood still, the more uncomfortable the feeling became. He finally managed to run from the room, but he felt the presence push him down the stairs. When he finished renovations, he was relieved. He could put the haunting behind him, except he couldn't. The next thing I know, he said, I was watching TV at my house, and from the wall next to it, out walks this shadow person right into my living room. The visits became daily, then more frequent. John felt the presence push him. One night, his foot was squeezed so hard he had bruises the next day. Finally, he couldn't take it anymore. He called a paranormal group to investigate, deciding if they found nothing, he'd have to seek treatment from a psychiatrist. But the group found plentiful signs of paranormal activity, and John reframed the way he dealt with the activity. I was running away from it, he said. Now I run toward it. He does in the form of his podcast, Phantom Faction, where he takes calls from people going through the experiences similar to his own. To hear John tell the story in his own words, listen to episode 360 of the Campfire Podcast. Wait, that's the guy that does the campfire? John Stewart. Huh. I've listened to the campfire before. It's a good podcast. Alright. This one is called The Homebody Ghost. The next story, even being a benign ghost, can be an unnerving experience. Sarah Hancock and her husband Johnny moved into Johnny's brother's house while their home was being built. The brother's family, him, his wife, and their three kids slept upstairs. Sarah and Johnny slept in the basement. Shortly after we moved in, we started to notice some strange happenings, said Sarah. Johnny and I would be in the basement and hear what sounded like footsteps walking around upstairs when we were the only ones home. Once during the night, we woke up and swore we heard someone jiggling the bedroom door. Another night, while she and Johnny were getting ready for bed, after everyone was asleep, the TV in the next room started blaring, but no one was there. When Sarah mentioned the activity to her sister-in-law, she didn't miss a beat. Yeah, she said when Sarah suggested the place was haunted, I know. She mentioned that she too had heard footsteps when no one was upstairs, as well as cabinets opening and closing. Once Sarah started asking questions, she learned that people who built the house had a daughter who had died there. Sarah's sister-in-law's parents, the home's previous owners, had also noticed strange happenings. Sarah and Johnny eventually moved out because the house was completed, but she says the creepy experiences with the ghosts will still stick with her. Today, they live in an unhaunted home, and Sarah works to gather reviews of all kinds of products and services for homeowners. Well, that's cool. Let's see. I think this one is, yep, The Ghost Who Wouldn't Sell. Candy Miles Crocker is a DC-based realtor, so she's seen and sold her fair share of homes. But she recalled for us one that she could barely even enter. A friend asked me to visit a house that a friend of hers was trying to sell, said Candy. She wanted me to see if I could figure out why the house wasn't selling. 
She looked at the property and visited in early afternoon. She walked in and she said, I felt a heaviness in the house. It was vacant, but it felt full. She walked slowly from the living room to the kitchen. She peeked around the corner to the sunroom, but couldn't go in. She opened the basement door, but couldn't bring herself to go down the stairs. It felt like someone was in the house, she said. She tried the second floor, but couldn't bear to move past the stairwell. I felt a need to leave the house immediately, which I did. Outside, it could breathe again, but she didn't call her friend because she didn't know what to tell her about the house. Two weeks later, the friend called Candy. Candy started to explain how she felt visiting the property. After a pause, the friend said, Do you think it felt that way because three people died in that house? <laughs> yes, said Candy, and they're still there. All right. Check on the time. We'll take a short break and get right back into it. In most English-speaking countries, the worst fate a naughty child can expect on Christmas is the absence of gifts, or in the U.S., coal. Children in other countries, however, can expect far worse. Far, far worse. Besides Krampus that we've already discussed, here are six of the creepiest Christmas traditions around the world. This one is called Fra... Fro Perchta. I'm sure I'm destroying this name. It is a witch who comes to see those who have been naughty or nice. She slits the bellies of bad children and stuffs their corpses with straw. It's sort of like Santa bringing coal, with, but with disembowelment involved. Creepy. Mary Lwyd from Wales. I think I've heard of this one. It was like a Facebook meme. Alright. Imagine. It's New Year's Eve. You are a small Welsh child. You hear a knock on the door. You open it. Looming over you is a creature with a horse's skull wearing a long billowy cloak and trailed by people chanting. In the horse's eyes, cavities are fake eyeballs. Its mouth is slightly ajar. You are paralyzed in terror. And as you wet yourself in fear, adults around you wish each other Happy New Year. Gryla and the Yule Cat in Iceland. Gryla is a giant ogre who lives in a cave. During Christmas, she emerges to hunt for children, which she kidnaps, takes to her cave, and cooks in a vat of stew. Gryla has a variety of companions, including the Yule Lads, her 13 unruly troll children, and the Jalakaturn, or Yule Cat. Did you think that the Yule Cat sits on your lap as you open gifts, playing with the wrapping paper, and contributing to the overall atmosphere of cozy Christmas high? Wrong. The Yule Cat is terrifying. Like Satan, walking among us, roaring like a lion, Seeking whom he may devour, the massive Yule Cat lopes through town in the dark, peering into lighted windows of children's bedrooms. 
The only way to save yourself from being eaten is to show him that you got clothes for Christmas because you were good this year. If you didn't get any new clothes, you leave out old clothes and hope to God they miss they meet his standards. Creepy. Um, the next one is Hans Trap from France. According to Aslation lore, Hans Trap is a local man renowned for his greed and unscrupulousness. He used witchcraft and deals with the devil to become rich. After being excommunicated from the Catholic Church, he lost his wealth and social standing. He took to roaming the countryside disguised as a scarecrow. At some point, Hans Trapp became consumed with the idea of tasting human flesh. He lured a shepherd boy to his death, then cooked him over a fire. Before Hans Trapp could take his first bite, however, God, finally feeling that things had gone too far, struck him with lightning. Hans Trapp died, but returned sometimes on Christmas to go from door to door looking for young, tasty children. Oh my gosh, <laughs> these stories are freaky. Let's see, this one is from Turkey. The Kalakanzari are goblins who spend most of the year underground trying to bring about the apocalypse. During Advent, they come out onto human territory to cause mischief and evil. They are sometimes described as black furry creatures with tusks and horns. They are usually male and grotesquely well-endowed. Well. <laughs> well, already then. This next one is from France, Belgium, and Switzerland. It's Pierre Vittar. Pierre Vittar was a butcher. He and his wife kidnapped, robbed, and killed wealthy children then carved up their bodies and hid them in salting barrels. St. Nicholas discovered the crime and brought the children back to life. As punishment, he forced Pierre Fatar into bondage of his eternal cannibal manservant. He follows St. Nick around dealing with problem children. Oh my goodness. Man. Some of those countries around the world, I'm sure there is a good, like, reason for these stories. Like, don't be out past curfew or behave or all this kind of stuff. But, my goodness. This stuff's crazy. Let me see if there's any left. Yes. Nick Rupert, or Rupert the Servant is another companion of St. Nicholas, familiar to German kids. Appearing in long black or brown robe and carrying a stick and a bag of ashes, Rupert's job is to ask children if they pray, and if they answer in the affirmative, he rewards them with gingerbread, chocolate, fruit, and nuts. Guess what happens to kids who don't pray? Rupert whacks them with his stick or the sack of ashes. The tale of this go back as far as the Middle Ages, and he's often associated with another Germanic folklore character, Black Peter. Jacob Grimm believes that, like Black Peter, Rupert is a holdover from a pre-Christian pagan beliefs. Grimm suggests the lore about beings such as these, as well as elves and household spirits who punished unacceptable behavior. 
and was the way of maintaining social order. Right. Uh, some more information on Mary Lyd, Lyd in Wales. Um, they come to knock on doors in that skull, horse skull. Uh, when the inhabitants answer, they are invited to engage in a battle of wits called a punka, engaging in rhyming insults. It's a bit like a Welsh rap battle. At the end, Mary Lyd and her carriers are invited inside for refreshments, and her presence in your house is said to bring good luck for the coming years. What a happy little tradition. Belsnickel is yet another companion of St. Nicholas. Man, he has like... St. Nicholas is like the good guy, and then he's like surrounded by a posse of like scary things like a cannibal manservant or a guy carrying ashes all right like many of the others he's not a very nice guy he shows up in dirty ragged clothes made of skins and pelts carrying a switch to beat misbehaving children with although he does not keep sweets and gifts in his pockets for the kids who have been good all year the tale of Belsnickel originated in Germany's Rhineland area, but German settlers brought him to North America in the early 18th century, and there's still a popular tradition of Belsnickel in parts of Pennsylvania, New York, and Maryland. Belsnickel shows up in the weeks before Christmas to check out who's been naughty and who's been nice, then reports back to St. Nicholas or Santa Claus, depending on which version of the legend you're reading. Looks like he just hits bad children with a switch. Right. Dun, dun, dun. Already talked about Gryla. Right. All right, this is a cool little story. It's a true story um, about a bunch of nuns who got possessed. Um, it's called the Luden Possessions. And I'll just read a little bit for you. The Luden Possessions were a notorious with witchcraft trial in Luden, France in 1634. A convent of Ursuline nuns said there had been, they had been visited and possessed by demons. Following an investigation by the Catholic Church, a local priest named Father Grandier was accused of summoning the evil spirits. He was eventually convicted of the crimes of sorcery and burned at the stake. Um... All right, the Ursuline convent was opened in Luden in 1626. In 1632, Prioress uh, Jean, Jean de Agnes presided over 17 nuns, whose average age was 25. The first reports of alleged demonic possession began about five months after the outbreak of plague. Uh, 
in 19 or in 1632 as it was winding down while physicians and wealthy property owners had left towns the physicians because there was nothing they could do the others attempted to isolate themselves the convents had shut themselves behind walls the nuns discontinued receiving parlor visitors grandier visited the sick and gave money to the poor a young nun said that she had a vision of her recently deceased confessor, Father Monsant. Soon, other nuns reported similar visions. Canon Jean Mignon, the convent chaplain, who is also a nephew of someone, decided that a series of exorcisms were in order. In the town, people were already saying that it was an imposture. The nuns claimed the demon... I'm not going to say a demon's name, was sent to commit evil and impudent acts with them. During questioning about the supposed evil spirit thought to be possessing them, the nuns gave several answers as to who caused its, grace, its great presence. A priest, Peter, and another weird name. It was only after a week, on October 11th, that Grandier was named as the magician responsible though none of them had ever met him. Next, physicians and apothecaries were brought in. They informed local magistrates of what had happened. Uh, Grandier filed a petition stating that his reputation was under attack and the nuns should be confined. Uh, the archbishop intervened and ordered the nuns uh, sequestered. Um upon which the appearance of possession seemed to subside for a while. The nuns' increasingly extreme behavior, which included shouting, swearing, barking, laughing, drew a considerable number of spectators. Eventually, Cardinal Richelieu decided to intervene. Grandier, Grandier had already offended Regilu by his public opposition to the demolition of the town walls, and his reputation for illicit relations with parishioners did not improve his standing with the cardinal. He had also written papers on attacking the discipline of clerical celibacy. <laughs> so, long story short, um, they investigated, but it was pretty much their word against his, and so, for good measure, uh, they were supposed to hang him and then burn him, but they instead just burned him at the stake. They didn't hang him. They had it all ready to go, but they didn't hang him first. They burned him first. Um, so, yeah. And then... Um, he fell alive among the burning wood. Do, do, do. And then supposedly the like exorcisms and the possessions lasted about five days after they killed Grandier. Um, the last departing demons left clear signs on their exit from the Mother Superior. Jean de Agnes, the mother superior of the community body, uh, when the names of Joseph and Mary miraculously appeared inscribed on her left arm. Allegedly, the Duchess de something reported 
the fraud to her uncle. Having achieved his original goal, Richelieu terminated the investigations into the events of Luden. Do, do, do. Yeah, so, I mean, this is all historical, historically documented stuff here. Um, the one part I don't get is, you know, whenever people get mob mentality, think about mob mentality with that absence of um, reasonable thought where you just fill in the blanks with um, superstition and stuff like that. So imagine if, like, they weren't possessed and then this man died for nothing, kind of like the witch trials, you know? Kind of makes me glad I was not born back in the day. I'd be like, I see shadow people. Just kidding, I don't. <laughs> don't kill me. <laughs> All right. Ooh, let's talk about the story behind this Evil place in Connecticut will make your blood turn cold. It's talking about Union Cemetery. How much evil can one place hold? Well, according to Ed and Lorraine Warren, the answer was a lot. They even wrote a book about it. Graveyard, which chronicles a host of their most harrowing, fact-based cases of ghostly visitations, demonic stalking, and heart-wrenching otherworldly encounters and horrifying comeuppance of the spirit world. With over 300 years of history and 50 years of reported sighting, Connecticut's Union Cemetery is listed as one of the most haunted places in the entire country. Union Cemetery is home to a number of ghosts and sightings ranging from soldiers on horseback to giggling children, but a vast majority of reports are from the famous White Lady, an unidentified woman who often appears on nearby roads. The second most reported sighting is that of red eyes. Visitors report feeling that they are being watched, followed by a sensation of hot breath on their neck. When they turn, they can see a set of red eyes watching them from a distance. Many visitors claim to feel nothing and are skeptical of the haunting, but the stories persist, leading some residents to avoid the cemetery altogether, especially at night. There have been many investigations over the years, and many paranormal experts claim to have collections of strange photos and recordings, unexplained fogs, cold spots, and strange footprints. Glowing orbs have also been spotted, spotted there. Doo -doo -doo. And then it gives the location, which I will not. And then it says, please be respectful of the site and keep in mind that it closes at sunset. Believe it or not, this haunted locale still isn't the most evil place in the state. Nowhere can compete with the cursed Dudley Town. All right. And then it says, step inside the creepy abandoned town of Dudley Town in Connecticut. Residents of Connecticut know better than to plan a visit to the infamous Dudley Town. And it's not just because it's on private property. It has nothing to do with the local police who patrol the area or the no trespassing signs. To be honest, the security measures are overkill for most people. 
because most people are too afraid of the deadly curse to even think about this place. As the creepiest abandoned town in Connecticut, I just lost my place. <laughs> As the creepiest abandoned town in Connecticut, most people stay far, far away of this particular destination. Because when it comes to Deadly Town, the darkness is the least of your concern. The pitch blackness that surrounds this village is nothing compared to the long disturbing history. This haunting dates all the way back to the 1500s, making it one of the scariest places in Connecticut. After the beheading of their father, the Dudleys fled to America in hopes of escaping the curse, but their involvement with a mythical book believed to open the gates of hell doomed them and anyone who befriended them. The town they established re was repeatedly plagued by murder, suicide, madness, and failed business. Even though there's little of the town left, it will never be forgotten. Which is why in the middle of a private woodland lay the last remnants of the little town, shrouded by trees and secrecy. The Warrens declared it demonically possessed in 1970s, but it has been abandoned since the 1800s. That's pretty crazy since it was only established in the 1740s. Some believe this place is the most evil place on earth, and ma many paranormal investigators have left this place running. But in the end, it's up to you to decide what you believe. That's what these guys did. Has a short video. Deadly Town cannot be visited, only feared. The owners do not take kindly to trespassers, but you can still get your fix of haunted places in Connecticut. Do, do, do. All right. Let's check on our time. Oof. Let's take a short break. All right. Welcome back. The last thing that I will get into is, I'm sure you guys have heard it, the Angara Forest at the base of Mount Fuji. Um, it's known for being a suicide forest. Um, and I'll just read this article. Northwest of the majestic Mount Fuji is the sprawling 13.5 square miles of the Ankogara, a forest so thick with foliage that it's known as the Sea of Trees. But it's the Japanese landmark horrific history that made the woods a fitting location for the spooky horror film The Forest. Untold visitors have chosen this place, notoriously called the Suicide Forest, as the setting for their final moments, walking in with no intentions of ever walking out. Here are a few of the terrible truths and scary stories that forged Ankara's morbid reputation. Angara is one of the most popular suicide destinations in the world. Statistics on Angora's suicide rates vary, in part because the forest is so lush that some corpses can go undiscovered for years and might be forever lost. However, some estimates claim that as many as 100 people a year have successfully killed themselves there. Japan has a long tradition of suicide. 
self-inflicted death doesn't carry the same stigma in this nation as it does in others. Seppuku, a samurai's ritual suicide thought to be honorable, dates back to Japan's feudal era, and while the practice is no longer the norm, it has left its mark. Vestiges of seppuku culture can be seen today in the way many suicide in the way suicide is viewed as a way of taking responsibility said the author of why do people commit suicide the director of psychiatry department at teiko university in kwazaki kanawa sorry i'm destroying these names Number three, Japan has one of the highest suicide rates in the world. The global financial crisis of 2008 made matters worse, resulting in 2,645 recorded suicides in January of 2009, a 15% increase from the previous year. The numbers reached their peak in March, the end of Japan's financial year. In 2011, the executive director of a suicide prevention hotline told Japan Times, Callers most frequently cite mental health and family problems as the reason for contemplating suicide, but behind that are other issues, such as financial problems and losing their job. Suicide prevention attempts include surveillance and positive posts. Because the high suicide rate, Japan's government enacted a plan of action that aims to reduce such rates by 20% within the next seven years. Part of these measures include posting security cameras at the entrance of the suicide forest and increasing patrols. Suicide counselors and police have also posted signs in various paths throughout the forest that offer messages like, think carefully about your children, your family. Your life is a precious gift from your parents. All right. It's naturally eerie. Bad reputation aside, there's no place for a leisurely stroll. The forest trees organically twist and turn, the roots winding across the forest floor in a treacherous threads. Because of this, because of its location at the base of the mountain, the ground is uneven, rocky, and perforated with hundreds of caves. But more jarring than its tricky terrain is the feeling of isolation created by the stillness. The trees are too tightly packed for wind to chip through, and the wildlife is sparse. One visitor described the silence as a chasm of emptiness. She added, I cannot emphasize enough the absence of sound. My breath sounded like a roar. Uh, Death by hanging is the most popular method. Poisoning is the second, often by drug overdose. Do, do, do. Ubasute is a brutal form of euthanasia that translates roughly to abandoning the old women. An uncommon practice only resorted to in desperate times of famine, where a family would lessen the amount of mouse to feed by leading an elderly relative to a mountain or similarly remote and rough environment to die. Not by means of suicide, but by dehydration, starvation, and exposure. Some insist this was not a real occurrence, but rather grim folklore. 
Regardless, stories of the Sea of Trees being a site for such abandonment have long been a part of its mythos. The suicide forest may be haunted. Some believe the ghosts, or Yuri, of the abandoned of those abandoned by the Ubasut and the mournful spirits of the suicidal linger in the forest. Folklore claims they are vengeful and dedicated to tormenting visitors and luring those that are sad and lost off the path. Annual searches have been held there since 1970. There are volunteers who would do patrol the area, making the interventional efforts. However, these annual endeavors are not intended to rescue people, but to recover the remains. Police and volunteers trek through the sea of trees to bring bodies back to civilization for proper burial. In recent years, the Japanese government has declined to release the numbers of corpses recovered from these gruesome searches. But in the early 2000s, 70 to 100 were uncovered every year. Bringing a tent into the forest suggests doubt. Camping is allowed in the area, but visitors who bring a tent with them are believed to be undecided on their suicide attempt. Some will camp for days debating their fates. Some on the prevention patrol will gently speak with some campers, entreating them to leave the forest. The suicide forest is so thick that some visitors use tape to avoid getting lost. Visitors who search, or volunteers who search the area for bodies, and those considered suicide Considering suicide typically mark their way with plastic ribbons that they loop around trees in its leafy labyrinth. Otherwise, they could easily lose their bearings after leaving the path and become fatally lost. You may not be able to call for help. Rich with magnetic iron, the soil of the su suicide forest plays havoc on cell phone service, GPS systems, and even compasses. That's why tape can be so crucial but some believe the feature is proof of demons in the dark. Go going off the, path can, off the path can lead to ghastly discoveries. The internet is filled with disturbing in images of the suicide forest, from abandoned personal effects snarled in the undergrowth to human bones, and even more grisly remains strewn across the forest floor and dangling from branches. So if you dare to venture into this forbidding forest, do as the sign suggests and stay on the path. All right. So I know we mentioned the suicide um, forest. So along with that, if you are feeling down and in need of help this holiday season, um, since I did mention suicide, I am going to give you the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. It's 800-273-8255. Again, that's 800-273-8255. And they're available 24 hours a day. Alright, with that wrapped up, I am, that's where I'm going to end today. And, let me see, did I get everything? Yeah. Yeah, that's everything. All right. Well, 
I thank you all for visiting my Facebook page, Paranormal Stories, Spooky Shiz is in parentheses, um, for inviting your spooky friends. I think we're up to 144 now, which is really exciting. Pushing that 150. Um, always very exciting, very exciting. Um, feel free to post your scary stories in the Facebook group, and I'll read them here on the podcast. Um, if you would like to remain anonymous, just message your story to me through Facebook Messenger, and I will keep your name out of it and read it on the podcast. Um, I hope everybody has a good Yule, good Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Happy New Year, um, stay safe, and, you know, whatever that means for your family. And I will be back probably at the end of this week for another spooky episode. All right. Stay spooky, my friends.